Balchow. That's hello and welcome in Gaelic. And welcome indeed to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode 11. Edinburgh Writers, the Big Three. I'm Marion Jones. Edinburgh is a place long steeped in the written word, wrote Duncan Smith in his book Only in Edinburgh. And yes, yes, it really is. And the plan for today's episode then is to talk a little bit about Edinburgh as a literary centre in general terms, to have a look at a couple of general places you can visit in the city, which celebrate exactly that, they being the Writers' Museum and Macca's Court, and then to focus, as I've just implied, on the three big writers connected to the city of Edinburgh, the ones everybody knows about, they being Robert Burns, Sir Walter Scott and Robert Louis Stevenson. And yes, of course, there are so many other well-known writers connected to Edinburgh, and I'll be dealing with lots of those in the next episode. But for today, we're sticking with the big three, planning to have a little look at the authors themselves, and at what they wrote that made them so famous, its connections to Edinburgh or to Scotland in particular, and perhaps one or two nods to the idea of where you can find them each in the city today. OK then, so Edinburgh as a literary centre. Oh yes, it was in fact the world's first UNESCO City of Literature, designated in 2004. And there are many reasons for that, apart from the obvious that it's the home city of the writers I've just mentioned, and lots of others. It's a city where publishing's important. And, of course, the city which runs the Edinburgh International Book Festival every year, the world's largest literary festival, to which some 800 writers come every year not to mention the over 200,000 visitors. It was in Edinburgh in 1725 that the world's first circulating library was opened. And libraries are still a thing in the city today, not least the National Library for Scotland, and the Scottish Poetry Library, and the Scottish Storytelling Centre. You're getting the idea. I read somewhere that there are over 50 bookshops in Edinburgh, which is significant in itself, but then when you discover that they don't just sell books, they run readings and literary cabarets and hold workshops. So more signs that this is a city that takes reading and books very seriously. A couple of places I wanted to mention that you can visit. And the first is somewhere called Macca's Court, which is, yes, a courtyard, and one which celebrates Macca's, which is a particularly Scottish word. The Dictionary of the Scots Language informed us that it means Someone who fashions, constructs, produces, prepares, etc. And in a literary context, it means a skilled poet or author. Someone who's absolutely mastered the craft of writing. So the way in which Macca's Court celebrates writers is in flagstones, which have quotes written on them. Quotes from well-known Scottish writers across the centuries. The project began in 1997, when the first 12 writers were chosen, and their quotations and the stones were laid, the quotations being in what I saw described as the main literary languages in Scotland, i.e. Scots, Latin, Gaelic, and English. So, some examples. The earliest quotation there is from one John Barber from the 14th century. He wrote, as early as 1375, the words, Freedom is a noble thing. Then there's one from George Buchanan, from 1579, I think I'm right in saying that he was tutor to both Mary Queen of Scots and her son, James VI. And I'm afraid the words which he wrote are in Latin, so let's have a go at that. Populo enim jus est, which I think means it is the right of the people. And then it goes on to say, ut imperium cui velit deferat, 
which means to confer power on whoever they please. So a 16th century plea for democracy, really. And then there's one of my favourites from James Boswell, Samuel Johnson's friend, who wrote, I rattle down the high street in high elevation of spirits. There's one from Robert Burns, of course. Man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. A line from Sir Walter Scott, praising what else but Scotland. This is my own, my native land. And another one I really like, from Robert Louis Stevenson, writing in 1883. There are no stars so lovely as Edinburgh street lamps. The Macca's Court is just outside the Writers' Museum, to which, if you are interested in literature, you are almost certainly going to be wending your way. So do stop and have a look down below your feet and find the quotes before you go in. Which brings me seamlessly to the Writers' Museum, which I have to admit I did not manage to visit, it being shut because of Covid when I was there. But I will certainly be putting that right next time I'm in Edinburgh. It's got three floors and each one is devoted to one of the big three writers. So if we take them chronologically and start with Robert Burns, you can see in the Writers' Museum things like his writing desk and a plaster cast of his skull and a draft in his own handwriting of a manuscript he wrote called Scots Wahey, which is apparently his version of the address given by Robert the Bruce to his troops just before the Battle of Bannockburn. So I'm guessing that's the Scots equivalent of the Henry V before Agincourt speech. And then there are bits and pieces he owned, so a chair, and a tiny little pair of gloves which belonged to his wife. In the section of the museum dedicated to Walter Scott, there is the rocking horse that he used when he was a small child. And people who have seen it comment that what's poignant about it is that the footrests are at two different heights because Scott had polio as a child. Then there are lots of other things of his, his walking stick, one of his caps, his wallet, a chess set, his pipe. You can see the printing press on which the Waverley novels were first produced, and you can see a first edition of Scott's novel Waverley. And thirdly then, Robert Louis Stevenson, again, lots of personal effects, his riding boots and fishing rod, his pipe, and even a tortoiseshell ring given to him by a Samoan chief. Stevenson spent the last years of his life in Samoa, where he became very well known, and was given this ring by a chief, engraved with the words Tusitala, which means teller of tales. And then there are first editions of some of his works as well. So let's move on to the writers themselves, and again take them in chronological order, which puts Robert Burns, born in 1757, first. A Scot, not originally an Edinburgh man, but born in Ayrshire, a ploughman, and a poet who wrote in both Scots and English, wrote poems and songs, and became so well known that he acquired various nicknames. Robbie Burns, The Bard. If you say that in an English context, you probably mean Shakespeare. So sometimes they call him The Bard of Ayrshire. And he was also known as The Ploughman Poet. He grew up in a farming family, loved Scottish tales and ballads when he was a child, and began to write himself. In 1786, when he was 29, he had his first collection published, Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect, it was called. It included one of the poems that everybody knows, the one called To a Mouse, which has the line, The best laid schemes of mice and men gong oft a glee. And if you need a translation, those last few words mean often go wrong. This book was an immediate success. Everybody loved it. Simple country folk heard their own language in it, 
sophisticated Edinburgh critics liked it too, which might be a little bit more surprising. But this was, of course, the era when Romanticism was just coming into fashion. So, on the back of his success, Robert Burns set off for Edinburgh, where he had a very productive few years, working with someone he met, James Johnson, who had a passion for traditional music, and the two of them worked together and eventually produced a six-volume collection of Scottish music and verse, to which Burns contributed about 200 songs, one of which was the one that really has stood the test of time, Old Lang Syne. Burns himself referred to this as simply an old fragment that he discovered somewhere. Scholars today agree that he probably did find the chorus somewhere, and maybe even the first verse, but he certainly added to it. So a very productive time, although in fact after six or seven years he began to feel unsettled in the city and went back to Dumfriesshire and back to farming. He had quite a colourful personal life with various children, with various mistresses, although he did marry the love of his life, Jean Armour, eventually in 1788, and also his political views made him a rather colourful character. There were a lot of extreme Calvinists about at the time, and Robert Burns took against them, getting into trouble one time when he championed one Gavin Hamilton, who was taken before a Kirk session, as it was called, so that's a sort of church court, for the crime of Sabbath-breaking. In Edinburgh's museums, you can find quite a lot of things which remind us of Burns. For example, in the National Museum for Scotland, there's a goblet inscribed with quotations from one of his poems. The poem was called Epistle to Davy, a Brother Poet. And there's a picture engraved on the goblet of three men drinking, together with another Burns line, the immortal words, Willie Brood a Pecker Mort. And also in the National Museum, something called a chanter, which was a type of musical instrument usually played by shepherds, already quite old-fashioned by the time Burns was an adult, but because he was so interested in music from the past and folk music generally, he acquired one. He'd gone to much trouble to seek it out, in fact, and when he found one, he wrote, This one of mine was made by a man from the Braes of Athol, and is exactly what the shepherds were wont to use in the country. And something which is a clue to his political views there's a letter written in Burns's own hand replying to an invitation to dinner on the 31st of December, 1787. The dinner was to be held in Edinburgh to celebrate the 67th birthday of Prince Charles Edward Stuart, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Charlie, and was being organised by the Stuart Club, Jacobite supporters, who met every year. And we know from the letter that on this occasion at least, Burns was very pleased to accept the invitation. But his legacy, of course, is really his poems and his songs and the way he was able to keep Scottish culture from the past alive and pass it on down the centuries to us. Here's one David Deitches writing part of the Encyclopaedia Britannica's entry on Robert Burns. Quote, it is positively miraculous that Burns was able to enter into the spirit of older folk song and recreate out of an old chorus such songs as I'm o'er young to marry yet, or green grow the rushes o, and a host of others. It is this uncanny ability to speak with the great anonymous voice of the Scottish people that explains the special feeling that Burns arouses. Feelings which manifest themselves in the Burns cult, celebrated particularly every year on Burns Night, the 25th of January, when Scots and Burns fans generally around the globe gather to celebrate his memory. Poetry readings, a haggis dinner, piped into the fall with a bit of luck by the bagpipes, 
and toasts to his memory. It tells you something that there are more statues dedicated to Robert Burns around the world than any other non-religious figure apart from two, they being Christopher Columbus and Queen Victoria. And quite right too, he should be remembered, as he himself would have put it, should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind, should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne. I'm going to move on to our second big writer in a minute, Walter Scott, but in fact the two did meet. I found a description of a literary salon held in Edinburgh at the home of the Enlightenment philosopher Adam Ferguson. Robert Burns was one of the guests of honour and the 15-year-old Walter Scott was there too. And here's how he described him. Quote, His person was strong and robust, his manners rustic but not clownish, a sort of dignified plainness and simplicity which received part of its effect perhaps from one's knowledge of his extraordinary talents. There was a strong expression of strength and shrewdness in all his lineaments. The eye alone, I think, indicated the poetical character and temperament. It was large and of a dark cast and glowed, I say literally glowed, when he spoke with feeling or interest. I never saw such another eye in a human head, though I have seen the most distinguished men in my time. Burns obviously made quite an impression. So, moving on to Walter Scott then, perhaps the Edinburgh author. You're certainly going to think that when you arrive in Edinburgh at the station and realise that said station is actually named after one of his novels, Waverley. And he was born in Edinburgh, went to school there and to the university where he took a law degree, although he began writing in his twenties alongside working in the law. In 1802, so when he was just into his thirties, his collection of Scottish ballads was published. A few years after that, he founded a literary magazine, the Quarterly Review, but it was in 1814 when the novel that he's most famous for, Waverley, came out. It's famous above all because it's regarded as the first historical novel. Walter Scott wrote 27 novels in total, and most of them were historical. Many of them were set in Scotland in the 17th or 18th centuries. So he would take a historical event, the Jacobite Uprising, for example, and write a novel based around it with fictional characters inserted into actual events. He may have been the first author to think of using this technique, but lots of famous people copied him. Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, for example. So the Waverley novels are set in Scotland in 1745, so at the time of the Jacobite uprising, and they feature an Englishman, one Edward Waverley who gets all mixed up in these very Scottish events. It was so popular that this book apparently sold more copies in its first year than all the other novels in the UK put together. Mr Scott had come across a winning technique. In 2014, so on the occasion of the 200th anniversary of the publication of Waverley, there was a big celebration in Edinburgh entitled The Great Scott Campaign. And the man who organised it, one Douglas McNaughton, was quoted saying the following, explaining exactly why it is he thinks that this novel was such a hit. Quote, Waverley isn't a boring, dusty old story. It's essentially an action movie. The naive young hero is brought up by relatives, goes on a perilous journey, and is caught up in the politics of an impossibly strange and exotic landscape. That's basically the plot of Star Wars. I have to confess I had a go at reading some Walter Scott and I found it quite heavy going, so I've decided to just leave you with a couple of famous quotes from 
Waverley. The first one is the following. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And then secondly, in literature, as in love, courage is half the battle. Walter Scott wrote poetry too, and that was also very Scottish. So here, by way of example, are the last few lines of a medieval romance he wrote called The Lay of the Last Minstrel. And in these lines, he is waxing very eloquent indeed about the beauty of Scotland, and how surely anybody who hails from there is full of praise for it. Quote, Breathes there the man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, This is my own, my native land, whose heart hath ne'er within him burned, as home his footsteps he hath turned, from wandering on a foreign strand. If such there breathe, go mark him well, for him no minstrel raptures swell. If you come from Scotland and you don't love it dearly, you must be dead inside, would I think be a rough translation. Another of his poems was called The Lady of the Lake, and that was so popular that it had thousands of tourists flocking to the place where it was set, the Trossachs. He had described Scotland's stunning landscapes, and people wanted to see it for themselves. And there is one more factor which led to Walter Scott carving out a little place in history for himself, and that is the fact that when King George IV came to Scotland, the first English monarch to set foot on Scottish soil in a long, long time, It was Walter Scott who planned and organised the whole thing. The year was 1822, and the theme for the visit was Scottish tradition. Walter Scott had been busy preparing all sorts of pageants and celebrations. He persuaded the king to wear tartan. He persuaded many of the people who turned out to greet him to do the same, although in fact in those days tartan was much more seen in the Highlands than it ever was in Edinburgh, and generally it was all a huge event. Here's Christopher McNabb, author of A History of Edinburgh, describing the things which Scott had organised. Events began on the 12th of August, the King's birthday, with a procession of the royal regalia from the castle to Holyrood Palace. The King himself arrived by ship at Leith on the 15th of August and travelled in a large military procession into the heart of Edinburgh, amidst cheering crowds. The subsequent festivities ran for a fortnight from the 15th of August and included spectacular events in almost every major civic building in Edinburgh. The highlight for many was George's appearance in Highland dress, wearing pink tights to mask his chubby legs. It was grist for the caricaturist's mill, but there is no doubting that when festivities ended, Scott had every reason to be pleased with the magisterial event. And here is Walter Scott's biographer, J.G. Lockhart, describing the arrival of the yacht in Leith. Quote, what, exclaimed His Majesty, Sir Walter Scott, the man in Scotland I most wish to see, let him come up. The distinguished baronet then ascended the ship and was presented to the king on the quarter-deck, where, after an appropriate speech in name of the ladies of Edinburgh, he presented His Majesty with a St Andrew's cross in silver, which his fair subjects had provided for him. The king with evident marks of satisfaction, made a gracious reply to Sir Walter, received the gift in the most kind and condescending manner, and promised to wear it in public, in token of acknowledgement to the fair donors. So all in all, Walter Scott has really quite a legacy. The first historical novelist, a Scottish poet, a celebrator of Scotland, 
and the man who brought the king to Edinburgh. He has the station named after one of his novels, Waverley Station. The monument to him in Prince's Street Gardens, just along from the station, is absolutely ginormous, will leave you in no doubt whatsoever how proud Scots were of him when they erected it, and he even has his picture on Scottish banknotes, which is actually quite fitting, because apparently he campaigned for Scotland's right to print its own money. Let's leave the last word on Walter Scott to the Scottish newspaper, the Edinburgh Courant, of 1832, the year in which he died, describing his funeral. Quote, the honoured remains of Sir Walter Scott were consigned to the tomb amid the unfeigned regret of thousands. Never perhaps was the esteem in which this truly great man was held more conspicuously displayed than on this melancholy occasion. And that brings me then to the last of the big three, my favourite actually, Robert Louis Stevenson. I read two of his best-known books, Kidnapped and The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, for preparation for this episode, and I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed both of them. So, Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Edinburgh, in the New Town, in 1850. He was quite an unwell child, and spent a lot of time with his nanny, who used to tell him exciting stories from history, about the Covenanters, for example. And maybe that's where his love of writing began. In his autobiography, he did remember loving writing as a child. Quote, I spent days together, generally in silence, making sonnets in a penny version book and rough as the material may appear, I do not believe that those days were among the least happy I have spent. Encouraged by his father particularly, he went to Edinburgh University to study engineering. He said not to have enjoyed that at all. He once said of his education that it was, quote, a mangle through which I was being slowly and unwillingly dragged. He swapped a law, he didn't really like that all that much more, and so he began writing alongside. This all came to fruition in the 1880s, so when he was in his 30s, because he began to be really quite successful. First came A Child's Garden of Verses, then Treasure Island in 1883, Think Piracy, Buried Treasure, Adventures. That was his first big success. Then in 1886, he published The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. That's largely set in London, so for today I want to concentrate on the novel which came next, 1886, Kidnapped, a historical novel with very much a Scottish setting, mostly in the Highlands, although it begins and ends in Edinburgh. So Kidnapped is set in the 1750s. It's the story of one young David Balfour, who's cheated out of his inheritance and leaves home and goes on a quest to try and get it back. Unfortunately, fairly early on, he's kidnapped and a whole trail of adventures across Scotland follow. So, 1750s, just after the failure of the Jacobite Rebellion, and that's really the setting for the story, because David is befriended by Alan Breck Stewart, who is a Jacobite, and who drags him into all sorts of adventures with Highland clans. There's an ongoing dispute between the Stuarts and the Campbells, and then the Redcoats feature too, so they're the soldiers from England, who are looking for Alan, who's wanted for murder, and who will surely hang him if they catch him. So the themes of friendship and loyalty and lots of Scottish history. It's a story that romps along, you're always wondering what's going to happen next, and told in language that is very enjoyable. So, by way of example, there's a moment when the ship's captain is being nagged by somebody to pay more attention to young David, who seems to be threatened, and he doesn't want to listen. And the way he expresses that is, quote, 
I make bold to say that you would keep your breath to cool your porridge. There is a wonderful chapter, I think it's chapter 23, called Clooney's Cage, when Alan and David stop off at the hiding place of one of the Jacobite leaders, Clooney, who's been on the run for several years and will surely be killed by the English if he's ever found. Here's the moment when the two of them arrive at the entrance. Quote, when we came to the door, he was seated by his rock chimney, watching a gilly about some cookery. He was mighty plainly habited, with a knitted nightcap drawn over his ears, and smoked a foul cutty pipe. For all that, he had the manners of a king, and it was quite a sight to see him rise out of his place to welcome us. Well, Mr. Stuart, come awa, sir, said he, and bring in your friend that as yet I dinna ken the name of. And how is yourself, Clooney? said Alan. I hope you do brawly, sir, and I am proud to see ye, and to present ye to my friend, the Laird of the Shores, Mr. David Balfour. And there follows an evening of sociability and conviviality, and, excitingly, a hint that Bonnie Prince Charlie himself has been there quite recently. I make you welcome to my house, says Clooney, which is a queer, rude place for certain, but one where I have entertained a royal personage, Mr. Stuart. You doubtless ken the personage I have in my eye. We'll take a dram for luck, and as soon as this handless man of mine has the collops ready, we'll dine, and take a hand at the cards as gentlemen should. My life is a bit dreek, says he, pouring out the brandy. I see little company, and sit and twirl my thumbs, and mind upon a great day that is gone by, and weary for another great day, that we all hope will be upon the road. And so here's a toast to ye, the restoration. It's stirring stuff, is it not? As I mentioned, although the main story is not set in Edinburgh, it does begin and end there, and here is a final little extract from the beginning of the novel, when David has left home, he's walked towards the city of Edinburgh, and he's just coming close to it. Quote, On the forenoon of the second day, coming to the top of a hill, I saw all the country fall away before me down to the sea and in the midst of this descent a long ridge, the city of Edinburgh, smoking like a kiln. There was a flag upon the castle, and ships moving or lying anchored in the firth, both of which, for as far away as they were, I could distinguish clearly, and both brought my country heart into my mouth. There are various places in Edinburgh where Robert Louis Stevenson is remembered, at the Writers' Museum, of course, and in St Giles' Cathedral, where there is a bronze relief memorial of him. There's a statue of him as a child outside Collington Parish Church in Edinburgh, and in West Prince's Street Gardens there is a stone inscribed RLS, a man of letters, 1850 to 1894. In 1994, to mark the 100th anniversary of his death, the Royal Bank of Scotland issued a series of commemorative one-pound notes. They had a quill pen and Stevenson's signature on one side, and on the other side his portrait, and some scenes from his book. Two million notes were issued, each one had a serial number beginning RLS, and the very first one was sent to Samoa, the place where Stevenson had been living when he died and where he was buried, in time for the centenary celebrations which were going to be held there. So yes, at the end of his life he lived, I think, for about six years, in Samoa, in the South Pacific, in a house on a mountainside, and it was there that he asked to be buried. The day after his death, his coffin was carried up the mountain by Samoans, and he was buried at the summit. 
The epitaph on his grave is the two last lines of one of his most famous poems, Requiem. It's a beautiful and very well-known poem, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. And the last two lines are the two which are on his gravestone. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. Yes, of the three I have to say it's Stevenson's work, which I most enjoyed discovering. So then, that's more or less it for today. I hope you've enjoyed hearing a little bit about Edinburgh's three best-known writers, but there are lots and lots more that I haven't even mentioned, so that's going to be the content for the next episode. I'm going to take another half-dozen or so of Edinburgh writers, talk a little bit about them and their connection with the city, and have a brief look at some of the things that they wrote. I hope very much that you'll be able to join me for that, but for the moment, going to sign off, as usual, by saying thank you and goodbye in Gaelic, as is only fitting for a City Breaks Edinburgh episode. So, here goes then. Tapa leave, agus marshin leave. <laughs>